0: being a showgirl was a privilege and it's a tough life but there's parts of it that are just so amazing
1: in this special edition of the showgirl life podcast i had the pleasure of putting athena aka gazella in the hot seat as an appropriate introduction to the creator and host of this program it is my honor to welcome you to the showgirl life podcast
0: i created this podcast because i believe that the showgirl even though in america for example she is nowhere to be found (laughs) i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure that there are zero showgirl shows throughout the um, whole of the united states there's a few in paris and there are some people trying to keep the showgirl alive in europe and parts of asia which is awesome i started this podcast because i feel Like, there's so much history out there about the shows, about the producers, how many feathers, like pounds of feathers, and, well, it's tons of feathers, I guess. How many tons of feathers were used to uh, build all the costumes for this um, show, all of that. Even though showgirls were a dime a dozen, we all have stories. We all have uh, moments that touched us, touched our lives, changed us, changed our lives. And I want those stories to be told. There's no platform in the world for those stories to be told. Um, And I want to create a place that those stories can be shared and those women and men that came before me can be revered and keep that history alive. Keep the showgirl alive through a completely different medium than she originally became famous in. I hope to interview some very important people that created some of the shows, the, sh- the very famous showgirl shows in Paris and Vegas, whether they're choreographers, costume designers, producers, Fluff, and Don Arden are no longer with us, but we have a few dream guests for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna share you know probably the information that's available in the history books that are written about showgirls or the memoirs that showgirls have written i have a friend who is a tenured librarian at the university of nevada las vegas and she is curating the special collections and there's a lot of showgirl ephemera from fluff and Don. jerry jackson has, has donated some things and he was the creator of the last version of the folie berger at the Tropicana. I'm hoping to just bring people forward. I met a bunch of friends, new friends, that were in shows in the 70s and 80s, some as early as 1958, and she still looks tall and gorgeous and beautiful. I hope to get her on the podcast. We will see. She is not American. She is, I believe she's from France, but we'll try it. And so I just, I hope to also educate what a showgirl is and what a showgirl is not. I want to dive into the history. I want to learn more myself. I'm doing this as a project for myself to learn more about what it took to be a showgirl and how how different it was back in the heyday of being a showgirl in Las Vegas, mostly, but I will be interviewing women who have done both Paris and Las Vegas and any other shows all over the world. I'm hoping to have some funny stories. I'm hoping to maybe get some mob stories, because I know that that's part of the history of the showgirl. (laughs) The mob was very much into part of that history, so I'm very intrigued, and I hope to learn a lot and entertain people with showgirl history. It's time to, to bring those stories to light, I think. Mine is not the only story. They're all similar, I'm sure, but for me mine started with ballet and i had no desire to ever be a rockette or a showgirl or anything like that
1: i had athena give us a bit of information about her background before becoming a showgirl
0: my parents owned a dance studio and it was just part of life dance was part of life performing competing all of it and at one point i actually showed an interest like i really wanted to do wanted to dance and so my parents continued to pour more money into my training hiring the best teachers in town got to a point where i was being awarded scholarships in competitions and studying at summer ballet camps and at one point i chose ballet i think i was 14 when i chose ballet i was like i want to be a prima ballerina but i think every 14 year old Which is that? (laughs) And this was actually before I had hit hit puberty. So my body still looked like a 12-year-old body. I had you know, perfect ballerina body at that time. And then I got a full scholarship to study at the Bolshoi Ballet in Moscow. They have an academy there and a whole dormitory and everything. And I went to study for a semester. And that was paid by the Ford Family Foundation here. I don't know if they're still around, but they were in Vail. That's where it all started. Interestingly enough, I hit puberty when I was there. (laughs) Uh, I was about 16, or almost 16. And, well, I no longer resembled a 12-year-old Russian ballerina. There are times where I feel like my body betrayed me because it didn't do what I needed it to do in order to become the prima ballerina I wanted to be. But I've forgiven my body, because <laughs> that's what you do when you're on the self-love journey. No, actually, I did uh, three seasons as a professional ballerina, court de ballet, uh, Nevada Ballet Theater. I had done a whole audition tour when I was uh, 17 years old. I went to... Miami, Tulsa, Chicago, I sent tapes to, tapes, VHS tapes, (laughs) to Pacific Northwest Ballet, because that's where the tall girls went, American Ballet Theater, San Francisco Ballet, Houston Ballet, all of the big ballet companies. And, you know, I, I went to Tulsa, I went to Miami, Sarasota, Indianapolis, and then Las Vegas. I didn't even know there was a ballet company in Las Vegas. I just wanted to dance. So my mom was probably the one that was uh, finding all these companies. And so I did live auditions for those last few. And I was offered a court of ballet contract right away for uh, Nevada Ballet Theater under the new artistic director. And so I packed everything up and moved to Las Vegas when I was 18 years old. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not really the place that dads probably want to send their daughters, their oldest daughter, but I went. And after two and a half grueling seasons, and I say grueling because my body was not what they wanted it to be. Every week I got a wait notice. It seemed like every week, maybe it wasn't that often, maybe no, I think it was every, every week, <laughs> every week. Oh, you need to lose five pounds. So I was miserable and it was not a good time. I was not happy. It was not what I thought it would be. I wanted to perform. I didn't want to rehearse 40 hours a week to perform five shows. And so an opportunity came up January, 2000. He was a former principal dancer, of the ballet company, he came to company class one day, and he said, you need to go audition. And I said, why would I want to be a showgirl? (laughs) He had left the ballet company to audition for Jubilee, the largest showgirl spectacular that was running at the time. And I I said, no, I don't want to do it. And he said, you have to go. They will love you. And then he named off a couple of former Nevada Ballet Theater ballerinas that had gone. And he told me about how much they make. And it was three times more than I was making as a ballerina, rehearsing 40 hours a week. (laughs) So I was 20 years old. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. (laughs) I'm just going to... I'm gonna go try this. I have dance training. I have jazz training. I have no idea what style of jazz this show is about. I hear it's a classy show. I had never seen the show or anything. I just, I knew that it was a showgirl show. That's all I knew. And a number of the ballerinas had left to go there. So I went and I auditioned the next day. I had to borrow I had cut Leotard because I didn't have one. <laughs> I had to borrow fishnet tights and I had to borrow uh, a pair of heels because they required high heels for the, the audition. I hadn't danced in high heels since I was 16 in Russian character class. So it was, needless to say, like watching Bambi on ice, <laughs> that audition. <laughs> I wonder if they have a tape. <laughs> that'd be funny to watch. So I show up the next day in my high-cut leotard and tights and the woman who taught the audition was this tall gorgeous blonde woman who I found out later was the lead principal dancer Linda Green. She had been in the show since it opened in 1981. She looked amazing. She was close, close to fifty years old, and she just had the most incredible body. And she could still do it; she could still move. And so she taught what I found out later was white disco. One of the hardest numbers in the entire show, uh, cardio-wise, and just everything about it—timing, the costume, everything—was difficult. It was difficult, and so it was actually perfect that. That number was the number that I learned to audition to be in the show because it ended up becoming my very favorite number to perform by the time I left the show. That was uh, an interesting experience. All we did was uh, learn the, learn the combination. And then we did our walks across the floor and basically your best showgirl walk. I didn't know how to do that. So I just did a jazz strut, which is very, very similar to a showgirl walk. I could be sexy, even though I was a prudish conservative ballerina at the time. And then they had us all line up in order tallest in the center to shortest on both ends. I don't remember. There were a lot of girls that auditioned that day. I don't even know how many, but I do remember that they called me down to the table in the, in the theater They were sitting at tables in the audience and they called me down and the first question they asked me was would i go topless and i was no i am here for a covered position (laughs) and they said okay this is donna london our wardrobe manager please go with her and go get measured in the history of the time i was there i had never heard of that happening to anybody else Everyone else had to wait two to three weeks. Everyone got the, okay, girls, we'll call you in two weeks from fluff. <laughs> so it was it was actually quite special. I found out later that they, you know, they wanted me to be a principal dancer. They were grooming me from the very moment I stepped foot on that stage. And that's, that's how I became a Las Vegas showgirl. I did it for five years, 12 shows a week. I miss it a lot. It is, it was quite an interesting life that we lived. And now it's, it's, uh, it's gone. <laughs> so sad.
1: <laughs> body type and weight seems to be a recurring issue in your story.
0: Everyone wants to be a showgirl, but uh, there are very specific requirements to be a showgirl. And it's, it's almost like ballet. My body was, uh, Ended up being perfect for being a showgirl, (laughs) and not so much a ballerina, which is so funny. There were strict requirements to be a showgirl in Don Arden's productions.
1: I then asked Athena about performing after she left Don Arden's Jubilee, and how she kept the showgirl insider alive.
0: Seven years ago, I took a burlesque class, workshop actually, to learn how to be a burlesque performer and create an act and get my butt up on stage again after I had retired from dance nine years earlier. Actually, it was almost by like four months. So yeah, it's about 10 years. And gosh, I still have that video and it's hilarious to me. I watch it because I can see how nervous I was. And (laughs) I was, the last time I was on stage and the curtain came down, I was the center principal on stage with 85 other people wearing $10,000 Bob Mackie costumes. So it was quite funny how Gazella came out. I think Gazella was the persona that I embodied when I became a showgirl and slowly cultivated her because I have pictures and videos of me early in my showgirl career. And you can just see the ballet slowly kind of dissipate out of my body and me really coming into my body and owning what it was like to physically be a showgirl. And that workshop in that time in the burlesque scene, I guess I just needed permission. I needed to give myself permission. That's the funniest thing. I had to give myself permission to buy a feather boa, to buy a ridiculous amount of Swarovski crystals. I had to give myself permission to make costumes just for fun. And I haven't made costumes for fun in a long time. I believe every day I embody the showgirl. Not 100% every day, but it's a a dial. And I would say about 10% of my inner showgirl comes out every day. I always try to wear small false eyelashes (laughs) i don't want to be out uh, with my ginormous gazella lashes unless i have a giant hat to go with it but i am keeping the showgirl alive within me and every costume and hat i create i'm of course inspired by costumes i've worn and inspired by colors that i love so i will keep making costumes and things just because they're beautiful Fun to play with, fun to try on, fun to allow, again, give permission to that inner show. There's something about the confidence of a showgirl. You just can't teach it. You can try, but it has to be. It's just learned.
1: Tell us a bit about the journey to becoming a showgirl history preservationist.
0: About five years ago, I had been performing in the burlesque seen as a burlesque artist, I did not call myself a showgirl. And that was mainly because I was doing striptease. And, um, well, showgirls don't strip. That's the basic defining factor is that showgirls don't strip. They come out naked already. There's no tease about it. And that's, um, for me was difficult. That's why a lot of my Acts were more silly uh, and cutesy than vampy, but as a showgirl, I am more comfortable being vampish and aggressive. And uh, I, uh, aggressive is yeah. White principal disco is one of those numbers that is very aggressive. So I decided that I wasn't happy doing the striptease and I was going to start trying to bring the showgirl back. And I remember having a conversation with a producer asking for permission to just dance naked. Not naked. <laughs> I say naked. <laughs> what would be considered topless with pasties? That's what I decided. And he was confused. But he said, well, you're going to be, you know, just wearing pasties. So that's fine. Just it's, I'm sure it's fine. And so I created a showgirl act, my very first showgirl act with pair of white feather fans and the crown that my love and I made that we call bow that was, that is inspired by the Bob Mackie bow from Jubilee. And I made that and over the years have been adding to that costume. I made a body chain to match it. I, I would say I became obsessed just from owning that crown. It has over 1400 Swarovski crystals on it. And I'm not talking like the 16S or the 20S that people use. I'm talking like 32 or or 40 SS. They're like 10 millimeter rhinestones they're huge (laughs) so 1400 is a lot and it's heavy there's just lots of metal so after making that crown i was i was like oh my god i want to make more so i had my white feather fans and i had the crown then i started butt pieces and then i challenged myself to make what i would call air quotes a real showgirl hat and started trying to figure out how that would work how that would happen. So I challenge, challenged myself to make a traditional showgirl hat, which is basically like a helmet with a bunch of feathers on it. And with the help of my love, uh, we figured out ways to create a metal sculpture. I went to Las Vegas and had a conversation with the head of the feather department at Jubilee. It was years after the show closed, but he started to teach me how to make the hats because he was the one that took Bob Mackie and Pete Menifee's sketches and turn them into costumes. He could take anything from a sketch and turn it into a garment, and I thought that was pretty freaking cool. So um, he taught me how to work with the feathers. He taught me ways to hack (laughs) some of the techniques that were used to make the hats in Jubilee. The hats that were made for Jubilee are all welded, and I don't have that skill and I don't actually have the funds to pay someone (laughs) to weld these crazy shapes for my hats. But maybe one day, maybe I will have a friend uh, can weld for me or whatever. So he helped me figure out a way to make these hats as close as we possibly could to some of the sculptures that were created for the hats in Jubilee. And so now I have probably 20 hats designed in my head ready to go just need feathers and maybe a little bit of time (laughs) and I'm I'm just gonna keep making these hats I have no show planned I have no reason to be making showgirl hats or costumes rather but they're fun to make and they're a lot of fun to put on once they're done and play dress up in so i'll just keep making these costumes i've made and remade about 12 costumes full top to bottom that girls can actually wear showgirl costumes and now i've taken some apart and using some of those pieces to make bigger hats for individual use originally i had wanted to create a showgirl show and i was intent on building each costume by myself for a cast of five to seven girls not sure that'll ever happen but it's always fun to dream.
1: Views expressed in this recording are not necessarily shared by Showgirls Life podcast or Gazellas Productions. Recorded, produced, and published in 2020, all rights to broadcast in whole or in part are the property of Gazellas Productions. Special thanks to Professor Felix of P-H-E-L-Y-X dot com. Also thanks to music makers Bizbaz Studio and Silent Partner. More information about Showgirls Life can be found at showgirls.life, S-H-O-W-G-I-R-L-S dot L-I-F-E.